What does Jesus want? Seems like a fairly important question, doesn't it? And yet, how few days in each of our lives do we spend time talking about that question? What does Jesus want? You would think an a question of that importance would come up more often. We talk a lot about what we want, don't we? What do we want from life? What do we want from a career? What do we want for our family? What do we want in a church? We talk about that. And I'm wondering what, it would, what would happen, what it would be like if we raised those questions in relation to the church. In relation to Jesus and what He wants for the church. What does Jesus want for my life? And does that reframe the way I approach my life? What does Jesus want in my career? What does Jesus want for my family? What does Jesus want for my marriage? What does Jesus want from my life? And what does Jesus want from His church? Kind of a different perspective, isn't it? And I wonder what our lives would be like and what church would be like, what our families would be like, what our workplaces would be like if every day we got up and that was the first question we asked. What does Jesus want for this day from me? What does He want? Well, today we're going to look at two passages that help us with that question. Uh, we've just read those together. In the first passage, we meet a disciple. The text actually says he's a disciple, but he's in denial. <laughs> he's a disciple in denial about what Jesus wants. And in the second passage, we hear from Jesus himself, talking to familiar disciples about self-denial. So there's one of two, or there's two kinds of disciples in the passage, and everybody's one or, one or the other. You're either going to be in denial about what Jesus wants, or you'll be following him and denying yourself. My hope, as we look at this text, is that we'll embrace what the folks in the scriptures had to learn from Jesus. I hope we'll embrace the truth that Jesus doesn't want anything less than everything we've got. Jesus will not be satisfied, brothers and sisters, with anything less than everything. The first passage we looked at in Matthew chapter 8, we met this unnamed disciple. He is called a disciple, which uh, surprised me a little bit. I was reading through this, I was kind of making some notes, and I, I thought of him initially as a potential disciple. Because here he is, and he's talking to Jesus, and he's acting like he wants to follow Jesus. And he says, hey, I want to follow you. i got some things to take care of. I want to follow you. And Jesus says, uh, whoop, let's get back to the right passage. Jesus says to him, follow me and forget about what you got to do. We'll talk about that in just a minute. But the text actually calls him, in verse 21, not a potential disciple, not someone who comes along looking to follow Jesus, but another of his disciples. So apparently this guy had been around. Apparently he'd been learning from Jesus. Apparently he'd been sitting around with the other followers, listening to what the Lord had said. Maybe he was there for the Sermon on the Mount. Maybe he was there for some of the parables. Maybe he heard Jesus teaching and he likes what he hears and he comes along and he's saying, hey, I want to get involved in this at a deeper level. i got some things to do. Let me just sort out my affairs. He's not a potential disciple. He's on the journey, isn't he? He's taken a step or two. He's following Jesus. 
The thing is, he hasn't yet come to learn, and he hasn't yet come to embrace that Jesus will not be satisfied with anything less than everything. He's not there yet. Which gives me comfort. <laughs> when I go to Jesus and say, hey Lord, I've got some things I need to take care of before we talk about what you want today. Now the striking thing about this, and he's, so he's a disciple, not a potential disciple. He's actually, he's there, he's on the path. But it's a crisis moment here for him, isn't it? Crisis moment for this guy. He comes to Jesus, and he has a request. And his request is not outlandish. In fact, it's entirely reasonable, isn't it? Wouldn't we think that what this guy asks is entirely reasonable? And wouldn't we expect Jesus to say, you know, yeah, go take care of your dad. He's old. Or dead. I mean, the, the scholars debate whether or not the dad was already dead or not. <laughs> if he wasn't dead, who knows how long it would be before this guy came back to follow Jesus. If he was, you know, take care of some things and it'll be long after a little while. But he comes to Jesus and he says, hey, Jesus, let me take care of my father's funeral arrangements and then I'm all yours. And Jesus looks at the guy and says, follow me now. Let the dead take care of themselves. <laughs> Every time I read this passage, I think, how many phone calls would the bishop get if I said that to some of you? <laughs> It'd be over, right? The, 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 you just, the SPR chair would not be having a good week. You know? Let the dead bury their dead. You go on a mission trip right now. It seems like a very reasonable request. But Jesus wants to identify a point in this guy's life where he's holding back. Where he hasn't wrestled and grappled and reckoned with the requirements of discipleship, of following Jesus. And so Jesus zeroes in on this place in this guy's heart where he's holding back. Where he hasn't said, what does my family life look like for Jesus? What does it look like if Jesus is in control of my family and my schedule and my priorities? He's still thinking, hey, I got some stuff to take care of, and Jesus, I'll fit you in on my schedule. And in this world, you know, another reason this is reasonable is because family devotion and responsibilities were one of the highest levels of priority in the ancient world. It seems reasonable to us. It seems more than reasonable in the ancient world. Because if you don't take care of your family, you're a scoundrel in the, in the ancient world. Those family bonds were very, 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 very tight. And to betray your family is one of the greatest, greatest sins, really, culturally. And Jesus just takes that and shatters it, doesn't he? He takes that and he absolutely shatters it. This unnamed disciple doesn't get to negotiate with Jesus, does he? Jesus isn't interested in working out a deal. He never begs. He doesn't kind of coddle the guy into the kingdom, does he? Now, and this is where Jesus is different than all of us. You know, because when we find someone who, you know, maybe we can get them to church and we're, you know, hey, we've got different times you can meet whenever it's convenient for you. And we've got different things offered at different times. And if you can't make it to church, maybe we can get something on the internet for you. Whatever is convenient. And Jesus is not interested in convenience, is He? He's not saying, hey, you know, you can't make it today, but you can catch the live stream tomorrow. 
Now, I'm all for live streaming things. That's great. Get the gospel out. But I just want us to think about how Jesus approaches the question of discipleship. He's not there to strike a deal. He's not there to work something out. He doesn't sort of say, all right, if you follow me, uh, you can get three Sundays instead of four this month. You know, It's not how Jesus approaches it. He just says, follow me and leave everything behind. Even the most important things in society. Just leave it behind and you follow me. You follow me. We don't hear anything else about this guy, do we? <laughs> it's probably not a good sign for how the thing worked out for him. You know, if, it had gone, if he said, all right, I'm on board, Jesus. I'll follow you. Forget about my dad. I'm on board. We probably would have heard about that, which means, you know, just a, a guess here, but Maybe this guy wasn't ready for that. Which makes me wonder, am I ready for the next step that Jesus has for me? And are all of us ready for the next step, next step that he has for all of us? Because following Jesus means always taking the next step, whatever that looks like. Following Jesus always means taking the next step. You can't follow Jesus and stand still, can you? Maybe I need to hear that today. <laughs> you can't follow Jesus standing still. There's always another step to take. And this guy, it doesn't look like he was ready for the next thing that Jesus was going to call him to do. And that's where his story ended. In Matthew 16, we get a little more insight into what Jesus wants. He tells us, here's what I want. And the thing that he zeroes in on is something we probably don't want to hear about. <laughs> Self-denial. If the first guy we talked about was unnamed, we know the players in this scene. Peter, James, John, the familiar guys following Jesus around, the disciples, the twelve. That's who's with him. And a little bit of context... We looked at this passage, the previous passage, last week. So some of you may remember, if you don't, here's what happened. Jesus is off with his disciples. He says, hey, who do people say that I am? Some of them say, hey, some think you're a prophet, Elijah, something like that. And Jesus says, all right, forget that. Who do you say that I am? You can imagine everyone just kind of standing there looking at him for a minute, and then Peter pipes up. <laughs> Peter always pipes up. You're the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of the living God. You're the Messiah. And in the ancient world, Messiah means king. In the ancient world, Messiah means king. And Peter had heard of other folks who thought they were the Messiah. And typically, when people came into Jerusalem saying, hey, I'm the Messiah, it's time to get some stuff done. And this happened a dozen or more times, a hundred years either side of Jesus. 150 some odd years before Jesus' birth, when Hanukkah was inaugurated with the cleansing of the temple, there was a messianic movement. So Peter's thinking about that kind of stuff. He's thinking about captains or soldiers getting swords and getting a cohort of men to go into the capital and take it back 
from the Roman Empire. When Jesus says, you're the Messiah, I'm sorry, when Peter says, you're the Messiah, he's right, but he has no idea what that means. And we know that because in the next paragraph, right after he says, you're the Messiah, Jesus predicts his death and resurrection. From that time on, this is 1621, from that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and undergo great suffering at the hands of the elders and chief priests, the scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And how did Peter respond? Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. And you think, Peter, come on, man, don't you get it? Salvation of the world, death and resurrection, this is the gospel. Don't you understand what's going on? Why would you rebuke Jesus the first time we hear the gospel? Because Peter has no idea what Jesus is talking about. Because for him, a Messiah is a soldier who rides in and kills the bad guys. And if you wind up dead, you must not have been the guy. <laughs> you were, I, you've heard me say this before. I didn't coin the phrase, but we'll stick with it because it's helpful. A dead Messiah is a false Messiah. Before Jesus comes along, that's the way a Hebrew person would have thought about it. So Peter just rebukes Jesus. He's like, no, no, no. And here's, we don't get the whole conversation, but it probably went something like this. No, no, Jesus, I have no idea what you're talking about with the whole suffering and dying thing, because we all know that if you die, if you think you're the Messiah and you die, you must not have been. What you've got to do is get, to, get a posse together, and we know some We can call the guys. And they'll be here. They've been waiting for this, and we'll get ready, and we'll go in, and we'll get started, and we'll win. When, G when, 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 when Jesus is arrested, remember what Peter does. Dude pulls out a sword, chops some guy's ear off, right? Not because he was follow, thought he was following the Prince of Peace, because he thought he was following a Messiah like the guy who cleansed the temple when they got Hanukkah going. That's what he thinks. He brought his sword because he's ready to fight. Because that's what Messiah means. And Jesus has got to take his preconceived notions about how the world works and how God's kingdom works and take them and dump them on their head. Just got to kind of grab it, you know, like schoolyard bully, grab you by the, you know, the cartoons, kind of grab you by the ankles and shake all the lunch money in your pockets. That's what Jesus is doing to Peter right here. <laughs> He's like, no, Peter, I got to reframe the way you think about this and you don't get to decide what it means to be king I do, and it doesn't mean that I've got to go and get an army together. It means I've got a cross waiting for me. And Peter just does not get that. And so he rebukes Jesus. And Jesus calls him Satan. Because earlier in Matthew's Gospel, Satan tempted Jesus with the same thing. Remember that? If you don't, it's in chapter 4. Read it later. Jesus goes out into the wilderness and there he's tempted. And the tempter says, won't you bow down and worship me? I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. That's the promise, kingship. The easy way through devil worship. You can be king of the world. All you got to do is worship the devil. And Jesus says, no, only going to worship God. Peter is inviting Jesus to go get the power through the wrong means. Because remember, at the end of the gospel, Jesus winds up with the power anyway, right? We've talked about the Great Commission. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to who? Jesus. So the thing that the tempter tempted him with in chapter 4, he gets it in chapter 28. 
The thing is, you don't get that universal authority by worshiping the devil. Jesus gets it by carrying a cross. That's called the hard way, not the easy way. So Peter's thinking in that satanic frame of reference. This is how you get power. This is how you win. This is what it means to be the Messiah. And Jesus comes along and says, if you want to follow me, you've got to deny yourself. And there's a cross involved. That's what I want. That, my friends, tells us Jesus doesn't want anything less than everything. Because you don't go to a cross unless you're willing to give everything. So contrast these two disciples. The unnamed disciple. Jesus, I want to follow you, but i got some business to take care of first. If anyone wants to take their cross, or if anyone wants to be my follower, let them take up their cross and follow me. Let them deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. I mean, just let the tension there, the contrast, sit with you for a moment. Peter has not yet yielded control of defining what it means to be the Lord. But he's been invited to yield that control, hasn't he? Peter's story does not end here, does it? After the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, Peter and the others who were with him that day, most of them anyway, implemented the movement. They fell in love with the gospel. And when they fell in love with the gospel, when they let Jesus begin to define reality, because that's what's going on here, right? Peter's got a notion of reality. Jesus comes along and says, I've got to redefine some reality for you. And when they bought in to Jesus' vision of reality, and when they bought in to Jesus' vision of the kingdom, and they began to implement Jesus' vision of the kingdom, they changed the world. And you're invited to be a part of a movement to do the same thing. Follow Jesus, change the world. And we get to decide, are we going to be like that unnamed disciple whose story ended in chapter 8? Or are we going to be like Peter, James, John, the others, and their disciples, and their disciples, and their disciples? Are we going to be like those folks who hear the call? Two words, follow me. No negotiation, no deals, no questions asked. No ifs, ands, or but. Follow me now. Even if it means death. How will you answer that call? How will I answer that call? Jesus doesn't want anything less than everything we've got now here's the good news verse 25 those who want to save their life will lose it those who lose their life for my sake Jesus says find it 
Jesus promises, if we come to our daily lives with the question, what do I want from this day? And we determine to clench our fists around our days and our families and our church and our job. We say, this is what I want for my life. Jesus promises everything you want will squeeze out through your fist. Hear it again. Those who want to save their life will lose it. The tighter you grasp control of your life, Jesus says, the more quickly it will squirt out through your fingers. However, those who lose their life for my sake, Jesus says, for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the kingdom, you find it. You come to your day and you say, Lord Jesus, I got some plans, but I want to prioritize what you want for this day. What do you want for my day? What do you want for my marriage? What do you want for my family? How do you want me to approach this thing with my kids? It scares me to death. I'm not really sure what to do. I got a few ideas. I'll probably mess it up. How do you want me to handle this thing? I got to yield control to you because, and I'm trusting you. You promise if I lose my life and I sacrifice what I want, I'll find true life. Real life, eternal life, deep life with you. Jesus says, those who lose their life for my sake will find it. You see, Jesus is not a cosmic killjoy. Deny yourself, deny yourself, deny yourself. Nothing fun for you. You don't get anything good. You don't get anything fun. No sweets, no treats, no nothing. No, Jesus says, I want to give you life and I want to give it abundantly and I want to set a table for you. I want to give you a banquet. I want to make you my bride, church, and I want to throw a feast like you never imagined before. And you go chasing after silly things. Silly things. And the fun wears off in a matter of hours. And you go for that when you could have abundant life. Jesus doesn't want anything less than everything we've got because when He gets everything, He makes it flourish. He fills everything with meaning and purpose and life and glory. His glory. And there's nothing like His glory. There's nothing more beautiful in all existence than the glory of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit revealed to us in the self-giving love of the Lord Jesus Christ who loved us and gave Himself for us. There is nothing more beautiful than that. And the call to follow is a call to life. And we've got to decide whether we'd rather have our way or whether we'd rather have life. Would I rather have my way or would I rather have His life? The invitation today is an invitation to life. But it takes yielding control to Jesus. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to your cross I cling.